You're listening to Kill Cliff's Hazard Ground Podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. Before we get started with this week's episode with a former U.S. Army officer who is now running for Congress, we'll get to him in just a moment. But first, some of our normal reminders, please follow us on all the social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at the Hazard Ground at Hazard Ground Podcast. Please interact with us there. We'd love to hear from you guys, and I'll certainly take as much time as I can to reply to everybody who chooses to write us. So we'd love to hear some feedback from you guys. Speaking of feedback, please continue to give us Apple reviews. Leave us a five-star rating. It doesn't have to be a lengthy review, but whatever the algorithm is that's out there in the podcast world, as we continue to grow, we'll climb up the Apple podcast charts with more reviews. So you guys have done a great job with that so far, but we need more. So again, it doesn't have to be a lengthy review. Give us five stars. Tell us why you love the show. We certainly appreciate all of the support. Don't forget about our promotion with Amazon. You can go to our website, hazardground.com. Click on the Amazon button at the bottom of the homepage or under the sponsors tab. You do all your normal Amazon shopping because it'll redirect your rate to Amazon. We'll get a percentage of what you guys spend, and then we donate a percentage of that back to some of the charities you've heard featured here on the show. Uh, and as well, it works with your smartphone. So it redirects your rate to the app. And if you have your credit card information saved there, it's really easy and convenient uh, for you to support veterans charities just by doing some Amazon shopping, but you have to go to hazardground.com first. Don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel where you can watch all of our Hazard Ground episodes as well. Uh, hazardground.com, Hazardground, or search for Hazardground on YouTube rather, not hazardground.com. That's our website, as if I don't know what I'm talking about here. And then finally, uh, download the Kill Cliff TV app as well. You can get all of our episodes in video form on the Kill Cliff TV app. And don't forget to shop for all your Kill Cliff clean energy drinks, as they are a partner with us here on the Hazard Ground, go to KillCliff.com. I use their Ignite and their Recover. These are clean energy drinks, some of the best stuff on the market. It's better than all that other crap that's out there that's loaded with sugar and everything else. Uh, founded by a former Navy SEAL, and a lot of their proceeds go to, to benefit the Navy SEAL Foundation. So, again, KillCliff.com. All right, on to this week's guest who is a West Point graduate who spent over 30 years in the United States Army and a retired 06 colonel. He currently is running for Congress in the state of Wyoming to replace Liz Cheney in that seat. But he also is the State Guard Brigadier General for the state of California in the 40th Infantry Division. He has multiple deployments overseas, and he's here to tell his story. It is Denton Knapp joining us here on the Hazard Ground Podcast. Denton, welcome, and thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Mark, and load all the listeners out there. All right. Uh, 30 years. It's a long time. And, uh, once again, there's a lot of uh, connect connectivity in the, in the veteran space as, uh, you and I met through, through mutual friends and, uh, excited to tell your story. You know, it's, I'll, I'll kind of start at the end instead of the beginning because we always start at the beginning, but I got to tell you, man, getting into the political space right now seems like a, a fate that nobody wants to do. It is ugly. It is messy. It's a contact sport. And, uh, well, I 100% believe we need more veterans in Congress. Uh, it, it's it's a tough, tough business to get into these days. No, it is. And like, you know, we've, we've served and uh, we know what it means to be a servant. And going to this this different world of politics is, is a, a definitely a new environment we haven't been in yet. Um, I made the decision for one reason. I think that's uh, what a lot of Americans are doing right now is 
we're fed up with what's going on at the national level and uh, want to see our country come back to where we uh, once defended it, served it, and have a little respect around the world at the same time. You know, it's tough. And again, you go into it, and this is maybe my naivete, because I always have this affinity for running for office. It's something I always envisioned myself doing down the road. It's something I've talked to many people about. A lot of it is timing. A lot of it is, you know, finances and being able to do it in, in a specific place at a specific time in a scenario that exists. All that aside, you go into it. Um, and I think a lot of people do this, whether they're former military or not, but they go into it with this idea and this idealism that they're going to inject a set of values into the political process that nobody has done before. No, nobody's stuck to any set of values, right? Because votes, votes can be bought and sold. They're traded for favors. That's all politics is. It's bar- bartering and prioritizing. And I'll give you this if you give me that. And all of a sudden, values go out the window because if you don't get reelected, guess what? All you got left is your values, <laughs> which doesn't help anything. So uh, quickly, values go out the door and you find yourself in a position where you have eschewed army values, personal values, moral code, whatever it may be, for doing things that will help you get to your next election. And that sort of is the nature of the beast. And it's an incredibly tough cycle to break. Um, I, I just think people go into it clean and come out very dirty. It's like coal mining. You can't wash it off. That's interesting. My wife said the same thing. She goes, you know, do you sure you want to do this? Politics is dirty. I said, well, I'm not. And she goes, well, don't be, you know, yeah. and she happens to be a coal miner's daughter. But uh, yeah, you know, that's why they say good people don't get into politics because, um, the culture is not necessarily what we grew up in in the military for any of us. And, uh, you know, maintaining your values, your ethic, and what you stand for while you're in there is very important. And that's why I'm not looking forward to a second term. You know, I'm saying give me two years to fix what I can uh, within my ability, within my beliefs. And, uh, you know, I've done my part in serving. And that's really what I'm interested in. And it is interesting. And part of the reason why I think, Military folks, and we are going to go back to the beginning for you here in a minute. It's just an interesting conversation. Part of the reason why I think military folks are better equipped for politics more than anything, because guess what? Every two to three years, you know what we're doing? We're changing jobs anyway, right? We don't want to stay and, in the same job more than two years. Please, it's at two years, we're like, please get me the hell out of here. Like, I, I need to. It's a campaign, you know. Right, it's a campaign. We know how to we know how to build and execute campaigns. Yep. Just give me two years. I'll fix what I can fix. And then guess what? This is your deal now, man. You take care of this. I'm, I'm out. I'm on to something else. So uh, there isn't that necessarily desire, but uh, to, to make sure that you're doing the same thing for the better part of, you know, in the military world, if you're doing the same thing for five years, it's like, what a loser. Like, you, you, you know, you're, you're failing. Nobody's got nobody's come to get you to do something else yet. You're failing. So uh, there's that. Yep. One thing I found is that, um, you know, we're still creating understanding with society about what a veteran is, yeah. what the military is. There's less than 7% uh, in the United States are veterans, and Wyoming's at 11.4% actually. So we've got a lot of veterans running around here, especially for the least populous state. Um, but creating that understanding of who we are and what we believe in, uh, I think is very important. And that's why, you know, I, I want to see a lot more veterans going into political office or service of some sort, whether it's at the local, county, or state level or, or national. Yep. And I get a lot of people ask me, you know, you came out of the military after 30 years and spent five years helping veterans. Um, why now, why don't you run for the city council or, you know, the mayor or, you know, county commissioner or something? I said, there's no time. I said, the things that need to be fixed right now with the country, whether it's open borders or our current interaction on the international um, relations realm or 
you know, our, our debt, the inflation rate, anything that's going on right now that just happened in the past year, um, I believe I've got the capabilities, the expertise, and the experience to change that. And as a rookie, I'll go on the floor for any of those committees or on the House and, and speak my mind. And, uh, you know, I'm not, not never ran from a fight, and uh, I wouldn't run from this one. Right. Well, let's go back to where your fight started at West Point. Um, is that someplace you knew you wanted to go? How did you end up there? It is. So actually, the fight started a lot earlier. Um, I, you know, I'm the oldest of five kids in Gillette, Wyoming, which is the third largest city in the state at, at, at about 30,000 people. Um, state's only got 500,000 in the whole state. So, you know, one, one representative slot at the national level is all. But my mom, um, my dad was a veteran, actually, in the Air Force after high school for five years. And went to Japan, met my mom and brought her back. My mom's half Japanese, half Thai. So, you know, I, I understand what it means to be an immigrant. Um, I watched my mom go through her process and become a nationalized citizen. And uh, I, I have great respect for her raising five kids in Wyoming uh, after doing that. So that really geared me towards service and looking at what America was about. Um, you know, like most kids out there did scouts and, you know, helped with the church and did, did things in school, sports, football track. And, and really geared me towards a life of service, I believe, and how I grew up. So I always did want to go to a military academy, and I applied to all of them. And uh, actually, Dick Cheney, Malcolm Wallop, and Alan Simpson were the uh, senator's representative that uh, actually gave me the opportunity to go to West Point. And that was in 1983. Did you, did you get into all three? I, I got accepted to uh, West Point, uh, U.S. Military Academy, Naval Academy, Air Force Academy, and Coast Guard Academy, and uh, made a decision to go to West Point. Oh, okay. Well, I was going to see if, see if anybody turned you down. Uh, what was the, what was the, well, uh, go ahead. The old uh, red, green color vision deficiency, you yeah. know, of one third all males. So Navy and Coast Guard were happy about that, but uh, the army was glad to welcome me in. Um, so, yeah, I mean, was it something about the army in particular love the West Point that you loved? And what was kind of the deciding factor between all of them? And you had so many great options. You know, like, like any kid, I wanted to fly. So the Air Force Academy, you know, as I said, yeah, you can come, but you can't fly. Um, I looked hard at the military academies. Not a lot, not a lot was not known um, by high school guidance counselors. Yeah. Um, in fact, uh, one that I had actually tried to convince me to not go and to, to go to university. But uh, yeah, I would say that um, West Point's history and its legacy—the oldest, the only military academy actually—it's U.S. military academy—and uh, and what it means to lead. So you look at some of the other branches. Um, a lot of them are technological focused machines, jets, ships, whatever to actually be in a small unit and able to lead people and influence them is, is something that I found very valuable. And as I went on through the four years there, it became more so. When do you get commissioned? What year? 1987. Okay. So we're we're in the post Vietnam haze and nothing's really going on in the world. Uh, Did you know how long at that point in time you wanted your military career to last? I did not. You know, it's a it's a five year commitment. So as an eighteen year old kid, you're you're agreeing to four years at the academy and then five years after that. Mm-hmm. So that's a pretty big decision for an eighteen year old. But uh, you know, when you look at the long long term of it, uh, a lot of people leave after five years, mm-hmm. and uh, you know they serve their country. That's more than ninety three percent of the nation can say in the military. But uh, staying longer became something I looked at year after year. Um, of course, you're always looking what's next, what's out there. You're not going to be rich being in the military is what they say. And uh, there's a lot more money being made out there in the civilian sector. 
but I was loving what I was doing. It was about service. I loved working with soldiers and, and their families, and that kept me going. So, where was your, uh, you know, where was your where was your first duty station? Fort Lewis, Washington, Ninth Infantry okay. Division, which uh, was a great assignment. I was four years there, and actually, my first deployment was putting out forest fires in the Scapegoat Mountain Wilderness area near Great Falls, Montana. So, it was my first wow. deployment. Uh, fortunately, it snowed after five days after humping around in the, the mountains there and hosing down fires and digging. Uh, the snow put the rest of it out and got to go back. Interesting. Uh, what time of year? Was it winter when that happened? It was, uh, well, of course, winter out here runs from about September through okay. May. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think, I think if I remember, I think it was uh, the fall around September, October. I was going to say, I mean, like, I feel like if there's a fire starting, people just walking towards it going, oh, let's warm up. <laughs> um, don't put that out. We're cold. Uh, no, it's a tough place to grow up. And uh, I think that got me ready for the uh, Army, uh, Ranger School, infantry for 30 years. In fact, I got married to my wife uh, during Ranger School. Oh, I don't really? know if you can say that. I did, uh, when I graduated from West Point after uh, four years, I commissioned infantry mm -hmm. and went home for my 30 days of vacation and met a girl uh, at the Holiday Inn bar here in Gillette, Wyoming, started dancing with her and uh, got engaged in two weeks. Wow. I went down to Fort Benning for six months of infantry officer basic and uh, ranger school, uh, recycled during the mountains, flew home for a week of uh, Christmas vacation, got married and flew back for three more months of ranger school. That is insane. It is insane. Not a lot of people could say they got married in ranger school. So yeah, well, I, I brought again, her in right. I mean, it's uh, if you're going to get recycled, I, I guess you may as well make make it worth your time. Is that <laughs> just sitting there in the uh, in the barracks, go home and get married or something like that? Exactly. That's a uh, wow. Uh, I I guess I kind of just have to ask, like two weeks uh, you, when you know, you know, love at first sight. What well, are you doing here? people say that you must just just know. And I said, well, we didn't know. Uh, each other for about the first year because uh, I actually picked her up after ranger school, drove her up to Wyoming, up to uh, Fort Lewis, Washington, put her in quarters and left the same week for a month out in the field for Yakima training and uh, came home for a month and then back to National Training Center for a month. So she learned very quickly uh, what it means to be military. Uh, we lived right on post and she has done that for now uh, 34 years, uh, 30 of it active during my service, uh, taking care of the families. Um, while we're deployed. Yeah. Well, look, I mean, you, you, I think you've hit it right on the head. The key to any successful marriage is to not be around each other for the first 30 years. And it gets easy. <laughs> she enjoyed, right? she enjoyed those one week breaks <laughs> or a month break here and there. Had, uh, you know, three one year breaks, but uh, it all makes for a loving relationship. I mean, li literally, nobody in the Army should have gotten divorced in the last 20 years. Like, nobody's been around <laughs> each other. Like, there's no reason to. Yeah, See, we have plenty anyway. of time away. It's almost like dating again when you come back. Yeah, I, I guess. Well, hey, look, I mean, like I said, God bless when you know, you know. Okay, so uh, you get the ranger school. Um, you know, where where are you on to next? Because, again, I mean, things are relatively quiet. You don't get to a combat deployment until post 9-11. So without trying to fast forward too far in between the next, I guess, decade or so, um, what's, what's kind of going on in your career? Well, interesting enough, um, you know, back during that time is the Cold War. Yeah. And so we were actually training to fight the Soviet Union. You know, everything we were doing was uh, fighting Go formations figure. of the Go old Soviet uh, echelons of the horde coming across a folded gap in Germany. You know, uh, we we're training for that. For the first uh, really five years that I was in the, the army. And and so that was what it was focused on was large formations, um, you know, depth of the battlefield uh, using tow missiles and then working back to your 25 millimeter down to your five, five, six. 
And uh, that's really what focused on. So, you know, I spent my time at Fort Lewis doing that. Um, a great time as a platoon leader. Had uh, 30 wonderful infantrymen. Uh, Humvees with toes and 50 cals and Mark 19s. In fact, my first weapon was a Mark 19 grenade launcher as a brand new lieutenant. So uh, talk about assembly, disassembly, and function check on that thing. I mean, that's, you know, like that's exactly kind of what you want as a young infantry lieutenant, right? Like that's the... The, the sweet spot for you to be in. You're doing all that stuff and learning all that stuff very early on in your career. Um, does it, does it help the trajectory of where you want to go and what you want to do next? Because sometimes some of those things we want to do in our earlier in our career, um, either they work out and put us on a certain path or they don't work out and they put us on another path. No, that's true. And, and, and the thing about going to West Point, um, as in any military academy or, or, you know, any other army schools or any military school is that you're constantly taught about the ethic, whether it's army values or creed or ethos. Um, you talked about that as an idealistic vision of what it should be out there in the service. And the important thing, the first five years as a, as a new platoon leader, new second lieutenant, you get to go out there and live it. Um, you see really what is ground truth, all those scenarios, vignettes, everything that you learn in school. Um, you actually get to see out there and live and, and sometimes create your own. And some of it is, um, disappointing but for the most part uh, everybody that's in there rose their hand for the right reason and are doing what they're supposed to do and that made it very enjoyable it made it fun and uh, the camaraderie that you get out there as a new leader um, just carries you on for the rest of your career so after that five years there i uh, went down to fort benning mother ship of infantry again mm-hmm. and went to my advanced course uh, as a captain and uh I had a great opportunity after that. I got to train new lieutenants for two years after that uh, infantry officer advanced course. At the schoolhouse? At the schoolhouse. So I had 30 lieutenants every six months that I was putting through infantry training. And uh, the great part about that is they listen to you, and uh, they soak in everything you have to tell them. And, you know, I was getting them ready for a career as an infantry officer, getting them ready for ranger school and that process. So a lot of time out in the field with them, you know, once one week a month or two weeks, and then uh, the rest of the time in the classroom. So I did that for two years, and uh, then I went on to command an uh, infantry company uh, right there at Fort Benning the, in the 3rd Brigade, 24th Infantry Division back then. So mm-hmm. I command, commanded Alpha Company 118 Infantry. Um, got one deployment out of that. Um, we actually went over to Kuwait. Uh, at this time, Desert Storm had already happened, yeah. and I was in 9th Infantry Division at Fort Lewis, Washington. Didn't get to go to Desert Storm. We were downsizing to Brigade. And so uh, I told my wife, it's like being a refrigerator repairman and never getting to work on a fridge, you know. Um, be careful what you ask for. So uh, I deployed as a captain uh, for about a month. It was when Saddam Hussein was bringing his forces back down to the Kuwaiti border. And uh, we did the first ever draw off the pre-positioned ships. So all the Bradleys and tanks and everything else that was on there stored floating around the world. And we were the first ones to pull it off. Um fit it and, and execute it out to the border. And Saddam eventually pulled back, so a good deterrence there. And we got to rearrange everything into task forces and put them back on the ships. So that was a great experience for a young captain. Uh, you get the early quintessential hurry up and wait uh, uh, kind of deployment there. That it was, three days and made it back in time for Thanksgiving. There you go. I remember the Secretary of the Army actually came and talked to us uh, on Thanksgiving Day. Right, well, uh, been there, done that, got the T-shirt, know the feeling, right? Uh I went to Kuwait and all I got was a stupid t-shirt kind of deal. So so after that, you know, took off. um, uh, I went to 
Port Irwin, California, okay. you know, from Mojave Desert, 30 miles north of Barstow. And for two years, I got to serve as an observer controller trainer for um, mech battalions, mech companies. It's kind of yeah. odd that you've had two big training positions this early in your career. It was. And, it, you know, it, I've had a pretty diverse career, um, both on the operational side and then also on the training side. I think that's benefited me as far as a, a sound understanding of doctrine and where we're going as far as acquisitions, um, training as, as a big force, and then also being able to execute on the ground. So I, I'm, a lot of people try to shy away from the training realm, mm-hmm. uh, especially if you're if you're out doing infantry things, nobody wants to go to basic training to do that thing. I actually command a basic training battalion also, uh, as well as uh, a line battalion in Iraq. So um, good variety. No, to say the least, I mean, I, I get why people shy away from training you know, positions. I, I understand it. It's not exciting. It gets mundane. It's, you know, it's like, Hey, I want to be trained, not like be the trainer kind of deal. You know, I want to get better and, and all those things. But I mean, I still remember several things that I was told as a second lieutenant during OBC by my TAC captains. Uh, there were lessons I took with me throughout my entire career and I've repeated them, you know, hundreds of times over throughout every command position I've ever been in. Um, and so I, I think those positions are extremely vital. Uh, and the people who do those jobs well, really, I don't think they, they bother to understand the profound impact that they can have with just a short conversation with somebody that sticks with them for the rest of their career. Well, it really does. And, you know, an example, you know, I say veterans need to tell their stories because we don't. You know, it's it's a quiet professional force. We do our mission. We go on to the next one. But unless we tell our stories, um, the next generation doesn't learn from us, uh, nor does society learn what we're about and, and what we do. And, you know, it, for the first time in a long time, the Army hasn't made its recruiting goal. And so you start looking back to when we were kids, you know, you really start thinking about what you want to be, who you want to be in elementary school. You know, a lot of recruiters are focused on uh, the high school kids. It's almost too late by then. And we're competing with the same people that uh, want them for colleges, universities, and, and corporations. Right. But to, to start that early and talk to kids about it being a profession and something they can do f- for a lifetime – or to get them started on a, on a good footing for life uh, because of what you learn in that short time, whether it's a three-year enlistment or you stay 30 years. Yeah, that, that's incredible. Uh, so where are you on 9-11? So uh, 9-11, I was actually in the motor pool. It was a Monday, uh, working motor stables down on the Bradley Fighting Vehicles. I was the XO. At Fort Benning? Uh, this was at uh, Fort Stewart, Georgia. Okay. I spent a lot of time in Georgia. I spent 12 years in Georgia. You know, seven, uh, five at Benning, seven at Stewart. Not, not so, a bad place. Uh, no, I've made it, it fact, comfortable uh, here. You know, when, when when guys say, yeah, I'm from the division, I say, what, 3rd Infantry Division? You know, they mean the 82nd, of course. But, yeah, yeah the Marn, the Marn team there is a, is a huge family. Yeah, um, still, you know, when I see guys, we sing Dogface Soldier together. And uh, it, it really is. But I was down in the motor pool. I was a major. Um, at that time, yeah, I was uh, the XO then. And... We immediately put gates on the guard, uh, sorry, guards on the gates, uh, sent all our soldiers out there and started looking at uh, deployments to some of the stands that we might have to go out, set up for in a preparation for what was going to come. And uh, so I remember it vividly. I had to go tell my battalion commander, hey, sir, did you see what happened on TV? And uh, he hadn't. And we went and watched that together and uh, things started coming. Within the next year, uh, I was deployed to Kuwait for six months and then did the initial invasion in Iraq in 2003. Okay. So that was, that was my next question. Were you part of the initial invasion? Cause three ID really was the, uh, 
was the spearhead of that whole thing. Um, we were so yeah, I, I was six months out in the desert doing the best training I've ever done in my life. Really, um, David Perkins, uh, who's retired four star, um, was the brigade commander at that time, and uh, Steph Twitty was my battalion commander. Uh, both those guys retired as four star and three star, but uh, we trained live fire nonstop for six months at the brigade level. And so when we went out in the desert and we crossed over uh, March 19th and 20th and then entered Baghdad on April 7th, it was it was surreal uh, how you do train to fight and win. And our training helped us do that. Uh, first time I was in combat, first time I lost soldiers. And I think the training and that repetition, that teamwork, that camaraderie that we built during that time was was vastly important. That's uh, I really saw the training world tying into operational at that time. We but, just yeah, picked- we lead unit in. It was uh, yeah. we were the first brigade in, second brigade three ID, and uh, I was the XO for Task Force three three fifteen infantry. And you talk about the thunder runs and objective Larry Curley and Mo. I was on uh, objective uh, Curley with uh, a great command sergeant major Bob Gallagher and uh, a lot of good people there. Interesting. Um, I'm wondering, you know, about kind of the lead up to the actual invasion. Um, what you're telling me, and look, we're, as we record this, we're 19 years past all of this happening, right? Uh, we're coming up next year. It'll be the 20 year anniversary uh, of the invasion of Iraq for us. And uh, when, when you're getting set for all this and you're sort of hearing the plans unfold, you know, you're, I mean, you're a seasoned field grade at this point in time. Is there anything about it that's clicking in your head that's going, this may bite me, maybe biting off more than we can chew, or this doesn't seem to make sense, or like, is it just, hey, let's go, let's just kill them all, let God sort them out? No, it was interesting. We we rehearsed the hell out of it um, day after day after day. Uh, we had a, a train model, you know, the size of a football field that we'd walk on with all the task force practicing everything as far as our checkpoints. And we just uh, started really getting fielded out there in Kuwait of the um, Blue Force Tracker. FBCB2, I think it was called back then. But uh, yeah, we had God. we had one specialist that uh, was in our battalion that uh, had actually hit out uh, when we were getting ready to deploy. And uh, I think we gave him an Article 15 prior to that. But he was the only one that uh, had the capability to put the graphics into that thing. And so, you know, he shined during the, the war came out, and we were able to follow those graphics all the way up. So you basically got a computer screen in front of you that shows – where each vehicle's at, each unit, and uh, where the reported enemy is as, as you're tracking forward. So I kept on looking at that thing. You know, it took 21 days to get up there after you crossed the border, and I kept on thinking, where's everybody else? You know, I see the Marines moving up on our right flank, and then 30th Division was going up the left flank. And uh, as we got closer and closer to Baghdad, I started looking at where all the other units were, and they're sitting down in the operating bases down in Kuwait. So, you know, we had the 101st down there, and uh, Marines are doing different things, but uh, – I thought we're going to a city of, you know, 5 million people and uh, we're, we're a brigade combat team. Yeah. Nothing like having, you know, just 10% of the enemy that you're facing. Uh, numbers are not in your favor. Yeah. And, and I, mean, I remember the Intel really didn't either. You know, we lived through one of the biggest sandstorms ever on the way up. Uh, and uh, I still remember just seeing orange for three days and, you know, not being able to see five feet in front of you. Thinking you're and, on Mars. For crying it just out loud. put us at a standstill. You know, yep. we had to stop and just go to ground for a little bit. I, I hit one of those. I remember we were about to roll out on a mission. We drove from our 
our compound in Iraq to the flying man right there at, at the airport. We got, we turn around, get guys, we got to bag this. This is ridiculous. Just turn around, <laughs> go back. We're not doing this right now. You know, this is, this only ends badly for everybody involved. So, uh, yeah, those sandstorms are pretty vicious, but you know, again, I, I, um, I, I still struggle to understand and only because I, I, my combat experience is limited to small unit, right. You know, like small team tactics. And so I don't, I've never operated on the scale where there's echelons, right. Where there's a whole flank to the right and a whole flank. I mean, I'm just leading convoys, right. So I got 12 vehicles tops. I got to worry about, uh, in, in the big picture, it's relatively small for me. Sometimes to process that whole thing, uh, is incredibly tough. Uh, because there's so many moving pieces and there's so many moving parts. And at some point I feel like, you know, the risk seems to outweigh the reward. And maybe this is just me in my older age, knowing what loss feels like and what it is and everything else. I mean, I'm sure when I was younger, full of piss and vinegar and all that, you know, it was a lot easier to, to hear those things. And go, no, no, we're going to get this. We got this right. You know, you're almost delusional about how easy it's going to be, or at least how simple it is when it's really not. And I, I go through this long winded explanation to ask you, you know, did you talk with your your folks about the idea of loss prior to the invasion and and what you guys were truly up against? We did, and it was heavy on our minds. Uh, you know, the night before we, we attacked up in the city of Baghdad, uh, I remember a blown out building. Uh, you know, wrote no roof on it, and it's dark, and we're there giving the battalion operations order um, to enter into Baghdad, and it was almost like World War II scene. You know. Um, we're all sitting there looking at each other, and, and we had very little intel <clears throat> of what was going to go in, uh, what was on the way in, and then also was at the city. Our mission was to secure three key points to allow the armor battalions to push through. So uh, we had uh, Task Force 164 that uh, was doing the thunder runs, and this was uh, this was going to be uh, after the second one. We established three points that we held, three intersections, Larry Curley and Moe. And I always say, you know, be careful which you name things because sometimes they go into history books. But, yeah, we named after the Three Stooges, which worked out great. <laughs> but uh, we were ma- able to hold those so the armored times could get in and then keep, more importantly, just keep the lines of communications open so we could push ammo and fuel up to the tanks. Because the initial plan was for us to, to kind of encircle Baghdad and uh, run raids through there and look for capitulation of some of the forces and then finally for the regime to give up. But what happened was we get to the center of the city and Colonel Perkins at the time, now general, um, said, uh, we can stay. And I went all the way up to the core headquarters saying, what? And he said, yeah, we, we can stay. We got Baghdad. And that kind of forced the issue. But leading up to that, he did something that was probably unheard of and, and great initiative of saying the faster we can get to Baghdad and, and show force there, the quicker this can end. And so he actually separated the armored vehicles, the tanks and Bradleys, and ran them up a separate route of attack through the desert while the supply and the tail end of uh, all the fighting forces followed a road convoy up. Mm-hmm. And so immediately he got the armored forces up there. Well, by the time they got in the city, they were out of ammunition and, uh, and fuel. So basically sitting in pillboxes, uh, running low on ammo, and we were able to get that up to them. And so that uh, that really made the issue of, getting them in, resupplying them, and they were able to stay, and the country fell. But, yeah, like you said, you know, the capability to bring in air power, um, naval gunfire, all that, you don't think about that as, as a young, you know, major. You get your chances at the training centers and things, which is pretty expansive. But when you get all of Kuwait to rehearse in, and then uh, you get the wide expanse uh, running up into Iraq, um, 
able to see the synchronization of your combat power was something incredible as, as a young major being able to do that. I can imagine. Um, that experience is over. Um, you know, you mentioned about sustaining losses and everything. What was that like for you guys uh, as you're coming home? I mean, is it relief? Is it sadness? Or is it maybe a combination of both? Yeah, the first the first person I saw actually die on the way up there was uh, David Bloom, who was an NBC reporter, anchor. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was actually embedded with us and, you know, ate with us, slept with us, prayed with us. Uh, we, we had him in Kuwait, and he took he went all the way up to the, the outskirts of Baghdad. On April 6, 2003, the day before we went into the city, uh, we were doing operations order briefing, and one of the medics ran over to me and said, David Bloom's down. I said, what do you mean? He's, he's unconscious. We're trying to get him back right now. And he actually died that day of a deep vein thrombosis in his leg that um, he'd known about, you know, that condition. And uh, riding 21 days in an armored vehicle probably didn't help that. Yeah, but his dream of going into Baghdad and televising live because he'd broadcast the whole way. <clears throat> in fact, <clears throat> he came up on me one day. That's when that last time I talked to my wife, I told him it's been about you know twenty days or so. He handed me his sat phone, and I got to talk to my wife. But an incredible human being. Um, in fact, when he died, his family flew a group of our wives from Fort Stewart, Georgia, up to the funeral in New York City at St. Patrick Cathedral, wow. put him up in the front row with the family and said this was his last family he had before he passed. That's incredible. So wow, that was David Bloom. The next day, uh, we lost Tony Stever, staff sergeant, uh, mechanic. Um, he actually got hit on the, the run-up to our objectives. And then also our scout uh, platoon sergeant, who is uh, John Marshall, sergeant first class. So both those guys were killed uh, – the RPG fire, and uh, we got into Baghdad. We, we actually occupied the Bath Party headquarters right across the street from Al-Jasud Palace there, mm-hmm. and we were doing a memorial service for him. And that's the first time I'd seen the inverted rifle with the boots, the dog tags, um, had David Bloom's press vest and his helmet. So for three of them, and uh, we didn't have any music, and I told my tech commander, I got a, I got a harmonica. He goes, no, you, you can't. I said, yeah, I can play taps. So I played taps on that. Uh, chaplain held a megaphone up to me, and we did the service. And uh, ironically, my wife was in the kitchen back at Forster, Georgia, and actually heard the music and came on. I was on TV playing harmonica. So since taking that to three combat tours, now that harmonica. But wow. that was uh, that was the first time that I'd gone through a memorial service like that for people dying in combat. And uh, fortunately, that's, that's all we lost out of a task force of, you know, over 800 people. What did that do to you? Uh, well, the first first of all, uh, the fight on Objective Crew was eight, eight hours long. Um, 360, they were dug in. So we were fighting. Uh, and I actually had friendly fire, 25 millimeter, uh, go through my vehicle that I was sitting in. <laughs> so depleted uranium rounds coming through. Some of the best place fire was uh, some friendly fire that we had as we were trying to um, move further to the city and bring another battalion up. Uh, so receiving enemy RPGs and uh, their fire along with some friendly fire, I didn't think I was going to make it out there that day. And I, I prayed hard. I said, God, just get me through this, get me home to my family. And uh, I remember laying there with two headsets, talking to battalion brigade, um, and thought, well, if I lay on the floor of the uh, 
577 command vehicle. If rounds go through this, I'm less likely to get hit. Right. So I kept uh, calling for indirect fires and uh, reporting on our situation as we were fighting through that. Had a lot of guys get hit then. Um, had a lot of heroics. We had, uh, it was interesting, on Objective Curly, I had the battalion talk along with uh, a Bradley platoon and then the mechanics, the mortars, the medics, you know, everything that you'd bring along to the tail end. And we actually all got in the fight then. And uh, it was incredible to to see that group of people come together. Uh, we had an ammo truck on fire full of tank rounds, and I watched a, a young sergeant run, jump in, and, and move it away from everybody so, you know, it wouldn't detonate on top of us. I was going to say, that seems less than optimal. <laughs> it was. It was less than optimal. You know, you think about which unit don't I want to engage the enemy full force, and we had that sitting on Curly. Um, like I said, I had Bob Gallagher there, who's command sergeant major. He'd been in uh, – you know, Black Hawk Down, he'd been yep. uh, with the Rangers, and uh, he'd done a lot of great things. I think this is, was his third time getting hit. And I said, Bob, I'm going to stand away from you, man. I <laughs> said, you're a metal magnet. Yeah. But, uh, you know, great leadership during that time, and a lot of young uh, captains and a lot of young NCOs standing up and doing the, doing what they need to do to win that. I mean, at this point in time, you know, when you get back from that first deployment to Iraq, you had, you, you're in for 14, 15 years at this point. I mean, there's no desire for you to leave is there i mean after seeing you know p- part of me i i totally get it. like you know you go to combat once like people are like okay i'm good i had the experience i don't need to do this yeah, there's nothing I else and it we had a lot of people leave mark exactly right um, a lot of people uh and the problem with this deployment was people were able to leave from theater so they actually did changes of command for you know battalion commanders and up they actually did uh early outs for people and i saw a lot of young officers leave um some of the ncos uh, also left, and that it was a terrible hit because that continuity that we had in theater while we were still fighting um, was disappearing. So we had new leaders come in and taken over right there in combat. Uh, yeah. As far as staying in and, and doing that, um, by that point, you know, they say after you do ten years, you might as well do twenty and retire. Um, but I was I loved what I was doing, and I couldn't think of anything else I'd rather do. Um, it was interesting uh, coming out of that. I, I ended up going to another training unit. So I came back to Fort Stewart <laughs> and went to uh, the old uh, ACRC, the um, first army active duty that was training the guard and reserve. So I went to work with the 48th guard in Georgia and uh, get them ready for combat. And then we also brought in all the combat support and combat service support uh, reserve units from all over the nation. So we put them through training, got them ready to go. And, uh, that, that lesson alone taught me about the Garden Reserve and what a huge combat multiplier those guys bring to the fight and uh, a lot of talent and skills, in fact, that uh, led me to my next deployment to go back to Iraq with the 4th Brigade, 30th Division, which was a brand-new brigade. Just stood it up in April, and we're deploying in December. And uh, I, got, I got the call to come be the Brigade XO for that and, and eventually became the Brigade Deputy Commander and then – took battalion command over there in combat. Oh. Um, something crazy that happened to Mark in my, in my very career here is uh, while I was the deputy brigade commander, uh, we were just South Baghdad. Um, we had a National Guard battalion attached to us with 30th Division. We didn't meet those guys till we hit Kuwait. And, you know, for everybody out there, most of the time you'll link up in the training center, so you at least get training periods with the, that unit. Right. Build that 
cohesiveness. And But we didn't get those guys to Kuwait. And uh, they had probably our deadliest se- sector down in uh, southern Baghdad in the Dora area. And the battalion commander ended up getting relieved, bottom line. The National Guard battalion commander. Oh, the National Guard. Yeah. He didn't really have control of his element and kind of out of his realm. We put in a an active duty brigade uh, DCO from the sister brigade, uh, Bill Wood, and he uh, he was blown up by an IED within a month. And so they said, "Nap, you're next." So I actually took command of a National Guard Air Assault Battalion in Iraq. Um, really, after doing a lot of investigations and, and living with them on Fob Falcon for six months prior to that. But, again, a unique experience taking command of that you know, in, in a rough area. A lot of air assault missions on a, was on a helicopter almost every other day or on the ground patrolling. And uh, that was a tough year. We lost over 50 in the brigade that year. Oh, wow. And 18 out of that battalion. And most of it that during that time was the heavy IEDs, um, you know, five-stack buried. What year was this? Over. Three seconds. So it was 2005 to 2006. That's when I was there. <laughs> uh, yep. So, you know, it was the election, right? And uh, yeah. we were, we're yeah, focused heavily on getting year, the yeah. ballots out. And, Did you get your purple uh, actually, finger picture? Did you get your purple finger? Yep, purple finger. And I actually had Geraldo in my back seat for four four days. Oh, really? <laughs> and uh, trying to keep him from going too far into the election areas where we weren't supposed to be. And uh, But, uh, you know, enjoyed that time with a great unit. Um, we came back and, uh, you know, ironically – I was going to fly back with that battalion to California, and uh, we flew down to Fort Bliss to to bring everybody back in and get all the awards done and all the things they had to do for the equipment and get them back to California. And I was prepared to fly with my wife back there, but uh, it turned me down because at the time the, the leadership said we don't want an active duty guy bringing the guard battalion back to Schwarzenegger, and my wife said. You know what? This is one army, one fight. If it was the other way around, all hell would break loose. And I, I saw then the animosity between the different components of yeah. Active Guard Reserve and some of that perpetuated. And, I, you know, I was really upset. I took those guys through combat. I lived with them for a year. And yet, as their commander, they made me change command at Fort Bliss. They flew somebody in, and we did it right there. And they went back by themselves, and I went back to Fort Stewart. Wow, that's uh, I'd be ticked too. Uh, yeah, I, it was it was eye opening, and it, that served me again. You know, I spent the time the training the guard in Georgia, and I got to command a guard battalion, and uh, later on I got to go work with the guard. So uh, that understanding, I think, um, helped me. And as I went on to some more senior positions, my last ten years in the army, even more so. Um, I went from Fort Stewart. After that, uh, I lost my son in May. Actually, July, we, we got back in January, 06, just after losing 50 guys. In, in May, I got orders to go to Fort Leonard, Missouri, to command a basic training battalion. And uh, my son had graduated college, actually graduated high school, was going to college at night, working during the day, and he wanted to stay. He was 20 years old. So this is the first time uh, our family of two boys that we're going to leave one behind. And he was set on that. I had a girlfriend of two years, so we put him in an apartment, gave my truck keys, and said goodbye. And 30 days later, he was dead. Um, Brandon died of suicide, uh, shot himself, 
fight with his girlfriend, drinking, um, you know, all, all the variables that they usually put together for suicide um, were there. And uh, we didn't get a chance to say goodbye. You know, my wife talked to him that morning. He's golfing. Have a good time. So after that, uh, that was two weeks into my battalion command, really focused on suicide prevention and taking a hard look. You know, I had privates walking in every day for that battalion command, um, you know, saying, I'm going to kill myself if you don't let me out. And some that attempted hanging themselves with belts and the, you know, latrines and that kind of thing. But it really brought home um, that mental preparation and that mental side of not only our, our, our service members, but also our families. Because I said, you know, we're doing a lot for veterans and uh, doing a lot for active duty as far as those in uniform. But I said, the families serve too. Yeah. And a lot of times they're under more stress than we are because we know what we're doing when we're over slinging rounds. They have no idea. And so the spouses that we've lost, the children that we've lost, military brats to suicide is vastly important. I've been beating that drum for the past almost 20 years now. Well, I mean, listen, deepest sympathies uh, for the loss of your son. That's, um, you know, there's no way to even comprehend it. Uh, as a parent, you just, you'll never prepare for it. You'll never understand it. And, uh, um, you know, I just, my heart goes out to you, your wife and your entire family. Um, I appreciate that, Mark. And like I said, you know, things have for a reason. I was able for two years to take civilians coming in on day one, 18 years old, and watch them walk away in nine weeks as a U.S. Army soldier. And just the transition they went through, a lot of their parents didn't recognize them. You know, guys came in uh, and lost 60 pounds. Guys came in, uh, you know, they were run two miles when they couldn't run a quarter mile coming in. So just watching that transition and be able to talk to them about combat experience and about why we serve and what that means and then, you know, using my own son's experience to do about the same age as those guys were to talk about life. Yeah. To talk about the importance of talking to each other and sharing things and, and never giving up. How, how did loss not to start to define you? I mean, you talked about that first deployment, you lost guys. The second one, you had lost a large amount of folks. And then shortly thereafter, your son takes his own life. I mean, at this point. You know, I would be looking for an escape. I, I don't think anybody would blame you if you said, look, I just need to go do something different, man. I need to go restart my life somewhere else. Well, for both my wife and I, and, and she had a really tough time. I mean, oh, understatement. Uh, you know, it's, it's harder for the moms, I think. And then our other son, Scott, who was a senior at the time in high school. Um, looking back at us leaving Fort Leonard, we're to go back for his funeral at Fort Stewart, Georgia. Um, the people that put us up in their house – uh, the Birches, he had been the retired 06. Uh, he was actually our chief of staff of 3rd Infantry Division during Iraq. Opened up their home to us. And the neighbors, you know, opened up their home and set up an RV. We had a lot of people coming in from all over the place. Um, our, our division commander was on the PCS uh, for his third star position out in Colorado. And his wife turned around midway and came back and organized food for us. So you talk about a family serving. It was a family taking care of us, and that was our Army family. And, uh, you know, at that point, my wife and I said, you know, this is exactly where we belong. This is where it's supposed to be. And nobody takes care of us better than our own. And we saw that right there with our 30th Division family. And that Martin team came together and uh, took care of us. Uh, we, had, we had a chaplain, Mike Lemke, flying from Belgium for the service. And that really drove us to say, okay, we're going to do this for as long as we, as we want to. And I tell you, at, at 30 years I was not ready to retire. 
Um, I would have loved to stay longer, but the Congress has a law that says if you're a colonel and don't make BG, you have to get out after 30. Yeah. Or are you still in? I'd still be in there. Um, but you still have one more deployment ahead of you, um, this one to Afghanistan. I, I wonder, you know, was there any part of you that after losing your son said, I don't want to go on another deployment and risk my life because, you know, the last thing I want my wife and my other son to have to deal with is the loss of somebody else. Yeah, that was that was a hard decision. Um, when I left Fort Leonard after two years of basic training there, and I'll just say this too for basic training, you know, people call it taking a knee. It wasn't taking a knee. Those those drill sergeants that came in there and those commanders and lieutenants um, were working twenty four seven, you know, all hours of night, taking care of brand new soldiers, and uh, they worked their butts off um, at the ranges, everywhere else, and uh, you know, it wasn't a break for them. It was, it was a different mission. But after after leaving there and contemplating uh, what was next, well, we've got a great assignment. And I called infantry branch the first time and said, hey, look, I lost my son. And I've never asked you guys for anything as far as assignment. But my youngest son is going to University of Central Florida down in Orlando. Get me to Florida so we can be with him because he just lost his brother this past year. So they, they said, okay, we got to slide down to Special Ops Command in Tampa, infantry lieutenant colonel. I said, okay, perfect, I'll take it. And so we went down to SOCOM for three years down in Tampa and got to That's spend three job. years. Yeah, got to spend three years. With the kid. It was a great job because <laughs> it's in J9, which is futures, and nobody knows what the hell we do. Right. You know, <laughs> sit around smoking jackets talking about the future. But uh, I got to run uh, the war games for the four-star command at SOCOM mm-hmm. to all the other services. So I learned at that level uh, – those type of strategic planning and concepts and everything that goes into that. And then I got a chance to write special operations concepts for the next two years and go brief those at the Pentagon. Uh, I was at the Pentagon probably a week every month for three years wow. and getting those approved for special ops command. I'd never been special operations. You know, I'd been infantry my whole life, but I found that about 40% at SOCOM have never been special operations. And it was probably the best blending bowl of all different capabilities to include interagency, you know, had a lot of sociologists, anthropologists, everybody there tied in with us. And so you had this great learning environment to fight our nation's wars on the, on the global level for counterterrorism. And uh, I learned so much there. It was such a rewarding uh, assignment and I would have loved to stay there and retire in Tampa. But uh, after the third look, I finally got accepted to go to army war college Uh, They were going to send me to Afghanistan from from Tampa. And I said, you know what? I said, last time you guys formally sent me to school was when I was a captain. I I did the homeschool for command general staff college as a major in the middle of all the combat tours. So I said, you know, I'll go to Afghanistan, no problem, but you're getting my papers after that to retire. And they called me back 20 minutes later and said, you're going to Carlisle, Pennsylvania, the U.S. Army War College. So I went there for another great year of learning at the strategic level uh, with a lot of other good colonels, 73 classmates from different countries to include uh, Afghanistan and uh, Pakistan and Ukraine. Uh, I had a great time for that year and then went to Afghanistan after that. And uh, my wife, of course, was worried. Um, we'd gone through all that, lost all those guys as a, a senior colonel by then and, uh, we went, you know, I, she stayed there at the Carlo, Pennsylvania for a year, and I went to Afghanistan. This was a very strange deployment because it was under NATO, 
and I was going as an individual replacement. I didn't have a unit, no train up. So I went down to Fort Benning, spent a, a week down there firing and uh, getting classes on first aid and, and you know everything else that goes into deployments. I get my shots and then off on the plane to Afghanistan. Once I got to Bagram, I changed command in, in one day. Uh, with a buddy I commanded in in the 3rd Infantry Division, Rick Nuzio. Uh, one day, over, I had the whole eastern side um, for the uh, Regional Support Command East. So I was a NATO element as a colonel with about 800 people, nine different countries, 20 different training sites up and down the east side of Afghanistan. And supporting, the first was the 1st Infantry Division, and second was 101st uh, Air Assault Division. So that was a good year of... Uh, Courting at that level, I had a three-star boss, and uh, really was on a helicopter every day flying up and down um, the Pakistan-Afghan uh, border. Wow. Lost um, two guys in. Had two Guamanian National Guard uh, personal security attachment guys that uh, actually got killed in uh, in uh, Kabul on a mission. Oh, wow. Uh, so this is at the at the end of your career. Uh, you mentioned earlier that, you know, the Army tells you to get out, or uh, you, you, was it – that's what it came to, that the Army sent you packing, or you had decided on your own? Well, as I started looking at my next assignment out of there, I knew it would be my last assignment. You know, at that time, I had four years to go to hit 30. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, where do we want to go? And I started going through the whole HRC system on computers there, what was available, and there was a job at West Point. So I called some mentors and everything, and it, it was probably the best job I could have gone in. It was the... Uh, U.S. Army's uh, Center for Army Profession and Ethic, CAPE. Mm-hmm. And it was located at Fort, or located on West Point, but actually was under the, uh, the TRADOC, Army Trained Doctor Command. And it was at Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri. I'm sorry, <laughs> messing up here. It was at uh, Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. Gotcha. Combined Arms Center for the Army, three-star command. And, and within that, I was able to, with my team, about 20 people, we wrote the Army's doctrine on being a profession. And for the first time, codified it in, in doctrine. And then I got to go around the Army for two years. Um, I say preaching the gospel, but I led a two-hour two dialogue with everybody from sergeants up to four-star generals, secretary of the Army, chief staff of the Army. Uh, got to brief General Dempsey as the chairman of the Joint Chiefs then, and he said, you guys did such a great job on preparing this training and, and how you put this together that I want you to do it for the rest of the services. So we actually went to the Pentagon and uh, got all the other service involved and started talking about military profession. But uh, that, uh, being able to codify an ethic, which included the Army values and creeds and ethos all rolled into that, uh, and be able to go around and talk about that, what it means to be professional and conduct yourself as a professional, um, really brought me 360 full circle to starting as a second lieutenant and learning at West Point, now back to West Point doing that. I did that for two years. In my last two years in the Army, um, General Perkins, who was the TRADOC commander, said, I want a 06 colonel as a liaison at West Point for the training doctrine command. And I said, I'm here. I'll do it. So I was the first one to do that. And actually got to tie cadet projects that we're working on. So we're talking 18 to 22-year-olds working on projects uh, and incorporate them into the Army's warfighting challenges. So those things that we needed, we had one cadet that came up with an algorithm that rotated air defense rounds uh, to make sure the temperature and variance is right to get the optimum missile going out. 
and the Army adopted it. So, you know, taking these great ideas from cadets and being able to say, hey, that fits in this Warfighter Challenge for the Army, and uh, you guys, I need to take a look at this and have this 22-year-old brief you. Yeah, uh, great ideas and cadets don't often clash in the same sentence, uh, being <laughs> like, that I was one. You know, great ideas like, hey, let's take this dummy around, uh, you know, and, and, and walk in the middle of campus and put it there and see who runs away from it. You know, yeah, like that's yeah. a cadet great no, idea. There's some great ideas there and uh, great instructors that were perpetuating that from those guys. And it was a good two years. And the great thing about that was for the first time in my Army career, I, I was responsible for me. And I was able to spend a lot of time with cadets. Uh, my wife and I had over probably 200 cadets come by our house there. And I finally got the big quarters two blocks from the football stadium <laughs> and uh, able to talk to them about their future yeah. and, and what that meant. And uh, that was very rewarding and a great way to leave the service after 30 years. And uh, then we picked up and had to be near our son and our two grandkids in California. And uh, I wasn't done serving yet. I asked the adjutant general what I could do as a retired Army 06. And he said, uh, join the state guard. I said, what the hell is that? Um, there's 18 states in the nation that have a state guard. It works uh, solely for the governor. And what we allowed was the National Guard to work on their wartime mission while we took care of the state. So fires, floods, earthquakes, civil unrest, COVID. A state defense all that force, essentially. Yeah. yeah. And, they, and, and they, they said, hey, we'll make you a general and put you in charge of the Army component. I said, great. And then they said, well, we want you to help out the 4th Division National Guard also um, be their DISCA person, their defense support civil authorities, um, and help them out with coordination force. So. I was able to do that for three years, continue to serve, continue to put a uniform um, once a month. And uh, at that time, my, my mom and dad getting older here in Wyoming, where I grew up at since I was one, uh, said, hey, uh, wife, we spent a great time with the grandkids and our son. It's time to go take care of uh, mom and dad. So we headed back to Wyoming here. Uh, at that time, was when I decided to run for office. That that's incredible. Um, I, I do want to mention because I forgot to mention it at the outset. While you were in California, were the you were the director at the Tierney Center for Veteran Services and Goodwill Industries of Orange County? Just uh, tell people a little bit about that. Yeah, it's interesting. So talk about transition nightmare. You know, I was retired '06 Colonel, two masters. To my wife, I say, yeah, let's go to California, be in the grandkids. I can find a job. Well, famous last words. Yeah, my whole last year at West Point, I was working towards that. I went to the transition assistance program, TAPS. Three times. He had a special executive um, version at West Point for um, senior officers and NCOs. And I went to that three times because I could. That time to do that and learn something new each time. Great confidence. I was going to get a great job, you know, work for some corporation and finally make some money and, and be out there. I couldn't find a job for eight months. You know, so on, on California's economy, uh, being unemployed and living off my retirement and disability uh, was tough. For eight months, and I did something. You know, my kid left me six months of my GI Bill after he went and got his uh, undergrad and, and master's. So uh, I said, okay, I want to use that to pay rent. So I was actually able to go to Irvine Community College, go Lasers, and uh, use that six months doing uh, business classes, real estate, and guitar. It was nice. able to pay rent. Uh, still couldn't find a job. I took a, a contract job for four months over in Abu Dhabi working with a lot of uh, people I'd worked for in third infantry division and helping the UAE come up with their, really their 10 year strategic plan for modernization of their forces and what they needed to uh, be our partner in the region. Uh, great experience learning that too, working with the UAE. And then uh, came back and was hired by Goodwill of Orange County. Never thought I'd work for a nonprofit in my life <laughs> and, and a great mission they have in, in um, 
getting employment for those that have barriers to work, which include veterans. And I say, well, we don't necessarily have a, you know, a, a physical or mental barrier to work. Ours is cultural. And, you know, I never had to write a resume or interview really for a job in, uh, in 30 years. So being able to help veterans, and there were 130,000 in that county alone, being able to help veterans uh, find employment, get them trained up, do mock interviews with Boeing and Disney and Northrop Grumman, um, and, and helping with food and housing and a lot of things that community just was immense. And I actually got to go work with VA um, from there uh, on their National Advisory Committee for Families, Caregivers, and Survivors. So with Senator Elizabeth Dole and a lot of great people, uh, Mike Lannington, CEO for Wounded Warrior Project. And I actually come with policy and, and uh, proposed legislation to help veterans, their families, and caregivers. And uh, I played a big part in suicide prevention of that, too. So it all came to fruition. You know, 30 years, I was still able to serve for five more. And when I came here to Wyoming, uh, my brother, who's a state legislator, said, you need to run for Congress. He goes, people aren't happy uh, with the incumbent, Liz Cheney, right now. And uh, I think you could get elected, and I think you could do a great job. So back in May 2021, uh, became a resident back here in Wyoming, my home state, and started that process of campaigning. Ah, uh, campaigning. Let's talk. E, you know, there's not an army guy out there who's afraid of the work, right? You're not afraid of pounding pavement. That doesn't bother you, the, the work part. What, what you're at a strategic and actual disadvantage is, is, you know, the disposable income it takes to run for office, comparatively speaking to those who have been doing this a long time and have deeper coffers and everything else. So knowing that was the challenge, how do you approach it? Yeah. So, you know, first part is putting together a team, which I was building the plane in flight. Um, I showed up here and quickly had to, you know, relearn who's who and to gather team together and, uh, I had a great high school classmate, Tracy, who had run track with and everything that uh, volunteered to be the treasurer and really came together. Had um, uh, friends volunteer for campaign manager and all that. But, you know, it was tough putting together a concrete team, especially with PR side. And they say, you know, you got to have money. You got to be independently wealthy to run for office because that's what you're doing is you're, you're running for office. You're not working at the same time. This was the first time I hadn't worked, really. Besides my eight months there in uh, California where I decided to go to college again, it was the first time and, uh, you know, trying to figure out how to make ends meet with a new move and, and not working with driving all over the ninth largest state area wise in the United States, uh, 23 counties. Um, you know, it's, it's about 15 hours across east to west and it's about uh, six or seven hours north to south. Uh, with snow, probably nine months out of the year. It's tough to campaign here. And so is the same money, uh, you know, helps. Well, the incumbent Liz Cheney's got over $7 million right now. Of course, a lot of people aren't happy with 6 January and the way she went with her um, personal values and things that she felt was necessary, uh, which was actually contradictory to most of Wyoming's. And then uh, the endorsed candidate, Harriet Hageman, um, who President, former President Trump endorsed over a year ago. And that's an interesting story, how all that took place, and I'm, I'm learning a lot. But Wyoming is one of those places that it's door-to-door. It's about relationships. It's about shaking hands. It's about talking to people about what you stand for, what you believe in, and, and name recognition, of course. So that's something I'm doing. I'm driving to 23 counties, going to every event I can, talking to people. And everybody I've talked to said, hey, we're glad you didn't drop out. 
when Harriet got endorsed, we're glad you stayed in. You're in for the right reasons. Uh, we like what you believe. But it's funny, uh, when people don't know you well, they make up a lot of things, and rumors fly. And uh, I've learned social media, especially Facebook, and that is uh, it's like walking through a minefield sometimes. Mm-hmm. What's uh, what's something that was made up about you that uh, that you know you you found totally outlandish, or would you be willing to share? Well, Liz Cheney funded my uh, my trip from California back to Wyoming to split the vote to ensure that she wins. That was one good rumor, mm-hmm. you know. Another one is I always get well. You ain't from around here. I'm like, really? You want to meet my first grade teacher? You know, I grew up here 118, and of course. I don't get to choose where I'm at in the active army. They tell you where to go, but I carry my Wyoming driver's license and vote in Wyoming absentee. And I'll put that against anybody's record here. I say, well, how long have you been here? Well, four years. I said, well, I guess you are from here. Then. <laughs> so it's just, you know, I, I grew up fourth generation, great granddad, Dent Floyd, who I'm named after Dent, uh, homesteaded out here. And my dad, my grandpa, all of them grew up here. And a lot of people know me, but there's a lot of transition uh, that take place for Wyoming. There's a lot of people moving in from different areas and, and there's a misconception about what it means to be in the service. You know, I had one guy say, well, I like Nap, but, you know, you can't make decisions on his own because he's in the military for 30 years. It's like I stayed in formation, wait for Sarge to tell me what to do for 30 years, you know. <laughs> so just creating that understanding of what it means to serve at that level and the different things I did in D.C. or, you know, with the interagency or the Pentagon, NATO, U.N., Special Ops Command, explaining to people, I've got that experience and that expertise. I've been doing that, you know, for 30 years of leadership. They said, what makes you different from anybody else? I said, well, we're all pro-life. We're all pro-gun. We're all pro-constitution, you know, individual rights, state rights, limited federal government. I said, we all believe pretty much the same platforms. I said, the difference is leadership experience. And I said, so as a brand new rookie, I could come into those, um, any of those committees or on the house floor and speak my mind and, and, you know, we lived and influence and negotiate and everything else that we have to do in the army. So uh, it's, it's Wyoming's political structure. is a little bit different uh, for the listeners out there. You know, Wyoming only has one representative. We've got 500,000 people. So that one representative is almost like the two senators. We serve six years each, you know, that's a, it's a huge right. piece of Wyoming representation. And for the primary vote, which occurs August 16th, um, it's it's most votes. It's not majority vote wins. It's most votes. So the fear is that if there's too many candidates running running on the Republican ticket, that uh, the incumbent Liz Cheney will be able to stay in office. You know, she'll get enough most votes to win if we split it all up. So everybody's saying, well, when are you going to drop out? You know, I said, well, when's Harriet going to drop out? You know, so I can beat Liz. It, it's, uh, it's one of those things where I said, well, I'm going to get a choice. Um, Harriet Hagman was endorsed by President Trump. She got to fly when she wasn't even a candidate yet uh, to visit with his people in New Jersey. And the next day, she announced her candidacy. And the day after that, Trump announced her endorsement of her. That was a year out. And I said, I've got, you know, over nine to 11 months to drive 23 counties to see who Wyoming really wants. And I do think I'm the most qualified as far as experience and leadership. And so why would I drop out? So I said, oh, I'm, I'm taking this in. And, you know, I want to see what Wyoming wants. There's been no debates yet. There's been no, you know, statewide polls. So for us to drop out and just support one candidate just because our former president chose her, um, I don't think is what Wyoming's about. Yeah, I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head. And I, I say this repeatedly to people when, it, when whenever I get into a political discussion, you know, I say it out loud. The first thing I vote on is leadership. Find me the best leader 
And uh, then we can have a conversation about policy and everything else. But ultimately, there is a vacuous hole of leadership at the top of our American political system right now. Um, and it's not it, it, it's, you know, the, the leadership itself um, doesn't have any moral code, any moral value. Um, you know, they're playing too much to the wrong audience, i.e. the social media crowd um, and trying to win votes and, and backing that way. Uh, when in reality, it's like you said, creating face-to-face relationships and everything is is what leadership is all about. Um, you know, anybody in the military will tell you this. You know, I can't fix a problem in the motor pool unless I physically go down there and see it with my own eyes. That's what leaders do. They don't make decisions from 30,000 feet without any having any knowledge of what goes on on the ground. And so um, I, you look for the leaders. You look for those people who have that sort of experience. And I've said that routinely to people. You know, I spent the last 20 plus years of my life and career working in the art of leadership and in the craft of it. Um, and, and I am a subject matter expert and I have no hesitation about saying that I understand what leaders are and what they're not. Um, I'm not saying I'm the best one, but I certainly think I have the expanse knowledge of leadership from soup to nuts, A to Z and everything else. So, uh, because I've lived it, right. I've seen the best, I've seen the worst, I've seen everything in between, um, and that doesn't mean I'm infallible or I don't make mistakes when it comes to leadership or I don't, you know, make bad decisions as a leader. That all that stuff happens. It still happens. But the key part of leadership isn't getting everything right. The key part of leadership is understanding what you did wrong and understanding how to do it better the next time. And that's, you know, the biggest thing I love about the military is humility. Yeah. You know, politicians live a life of hubris, you know, out there, and that's what it's about. But we come from a life of humility. And that's part of our detriment as veterans. Is we don't talk about our story, what we did. So I love what you're doing right now on the podcast and, and putting this out, Mark, because it's what Thank we you. need. I'm telling veterans everywhere I go, first of all, tell your story. You know, whatever part of it. But your story talks about trust. It talks about service. It talks about ethic. And that's what America needs to hear. Um, they need to understand who we are and what we do as 7% of the population. And influence that 93% to gain understanding. Um, helps veterans get better health care. It helps veterans get better jobs. It helps their families, helps the mental health counseling. It does all that because people hear us and see us. So, uh, you know, we did a major campaign while I was working with Goodwill of Orange County. Uh, we called it uh, Ask the Questions. And there's two questions that you ask. Anybody you sit next to on a plane, um, walk by at a store, fill your gas next to them is, hey, did you serve? Did you serve in the military? I stopped asking, are you a veteran? Because a lot of people say, no, I, I was just in the guard or no, I didn't deploy or, you know, I was only in two years or no, you're still a veteran. So I started asking, did you serve in the military? And I'll say, yeah, I did this and this. Okay. Do you have family? You know, and then that leads to what do you need? Oh, we need nothing. We're good. No, no, really. What do you need? And if they don't need anything, can they help other veterans? So, you know, joining those organizations that keep our identity because we don't lose that. I say as a veteran, um, you know, they tell us when you transition to grow your hair, change your lexicon, get out there, find a job, fit in. No, that's not who we are. I say it's a different mission in a different environment. And that's what it is. And one of the things we need to do is join those organizations with people that believe what we believe, you know, the trust. Veteran Foreign Wars, American Legion, mm-hmm. um, helping with the VA, helping the community. So, you know, if you if you want to be on the city council or run for mayor or Board of Supervisors or County Commission, whatever it be, do it. 
And like you said, uh, we bring a different perspective that 93% of the rest of the United States may not understand. Uh, the 7% of us that have led, they understand relationships and people negotiate to get things done and get it done ethically in the right way. Um, that's what we got to do. And so I'd love to see more veterans stand up uh, at every level in the community. Right. And if it's not running for office, volunteer for something, whatever your passion is. You know, kids need help. Um, there's a lot going on in the United States we've got to fix, and it's it's veterans that are going to help fix it. Is is there something uh, over the course of your military career that you sort of, I mean, outside of leadership, obviously, but, I mean, is there a trait, is there a value, a characteristic that you have sort of relied on the most, not only while campaigning, campaigning but also, you know, you think will serve you best in, in office should you win? Yeah, I, I think it's integrity, mm-hmm. uh, which which forms trust. It is about relationships and about talking to people. And that's what government's about. You know, it's a great negotiation to get what's best for what the people need. And I think we're best at that. Um, I think the service kind of makes you moderate. Um, I'm a served Republican, but, you know, I've got lots of friends out there that are in different walks of life. And to be able to get along with everybody and to not worry about race, not worry about, you know, political affiliation and see people as people and work together for the good of our country. That's what it's about. And I think integrity um, lets people see inside of you. It lets them understand what you're about and believe what you say. And I think because of that, uh, it gains trust. And that's what we need in the country. A lot of people lost trust with our, with our government yeah. and with each other for, for all intents and means. So I love diversity, um, the negative side of people not tolerating each other's beliefs, you know, and, and our first amendment, everything else said, Hey, I can, I can see what I believe and you don't have to beat the hell out of me for it, you know, because you, you got your own opinion and I can respect that too. And I think that's one thing that the, the military has taught us is that integrity um, and respect for each other and, and that humility that goes along with it. Where can people go to, uh, to donate and help out if they want to support? Yeah, so interesting. You know, I said Liz got seven million, Harriet's got uh, over a million, and I, I said I'm going to driving to 23 counties asking for a buck fifty. You know, but uh, I've raised about just a little over 20 grand, and all of it's gone to marketing materials and you know, radio spots, the type of thing. But I made it very easy. It's DentonNap.com. Okay. Yeah, DentonNap, and that's K-N-A-P-P. E-N-T-O-N-K-N-A-P-P.com. And there's a link on there to Win Red. Go straight to the donation site. So it's easy. Got some videos on there. You can learn more about me and. Uh, email and phone that uh, you can contact me ask questions. So thank you. Well, look, I, I hope you'll share uh, more of your story on your website with people and, and help push this out there because it, it, it is a great tool to learn about you uh, and sharing your military story and what you're about and everything else. And, you know, uh, I, I, again, I heartfelt loss for your son uh, and to your, your entire family. Um, that's uh, I, I missed that in my notes. I'm not going to lie. So I was uh, not, not prepared for it, but, you know, that, that part of your story, uh, you know, it's, it's the old adage doesn't kill you. It makes you stronger. Right. And, and there is part of you every day that, that takes your son with you and, and lives for him and, and he lives through you. And I wish you continued success with all that. I wish you the greatest success in, in your run for office. I hope you get it. Like I said repeatedly, we need more veterans in office period. Um, it just needs to be a better, we don't need all of us, you know, but we just need a better representation of people who, who bring those values that we, we hold so dear. Um, that, that guide us in the right direction more often than not. Um, it doesn't mean veterans are perfect or they never make mistakes. It just, we, we generally all live by the same, you know, code and value system that, uh, 
that benefits us more than not. So I, I hope it works out the best for you. No, I appreciate it, Mark. And that's exactly it. I think more than anything else is love for country. Um, mm-hmm. We all rose, you know, raised our hand and uh, said we'd give our life if we need to. And our families all understood that. So it's, it's that love for country, um, my love for my home state, and us wanting to make everything good for our next generations. I got two grandkids, you know, and I'm worried about what world they're going to grow up in. So I appreciate that. And Mark, you're doing exactly what you need to do. Um, you know, as, as, a, as a veteran running this podcast and, and giving veterans opportunity to tell their story is what we need. And oh, so thanks. thanks. I'll refer some guys to you. Absolutely. I gen- genuinely appreciate it. And, and I do have to ask real quick, and I, we touched on this before, before we started recording, but uh, one final little anecdote. Since Yellowstone is all about Wyoming, are people from Wyoming upset that it's not – like, what are we learning in Yellowstone that's not really true about Wyoming? Uh, you know, a lot of people are moving here. <laughs> and for, for a small state of 500,000 where you got to be tough, I mean, 20 below wind chill on a, on a daily basis, you know, you got to want to live here yeah, and to stay. And so I think a lot of people that are coming in from different areas, uh, Washington, Idaho, uh, California, you know, Oregon are, are learning that the winners come with living here in this freedom. And it's a great state to be from, uh, Cowboy State and first state to let women vote and first state to have a female governor and you know, all kinds of things that are first out here for the, for this place. But, you know, Yellowstone, it's the number one tourist place. It even was during COVID. Mm-hmm. A lot of people are coming through there. And I just sat through a briefing about uh, electronic vehicles and charging stations. Oh, wow. Here in Wyoming so that people can come visit Yellowstone from different places that have a lot of electronic cars. Um, yeah. It, tourist, tourism is uh, our second largest uh, revenue for the state. And it's a great place to see everything. First National Park, First National Monument, all kinds mm-hmm. of things to do here. Love it. And, uh, of course, the people are absolutely wonderful. And the people that are moving here are generally moving here for the right reasons. And you know, they want freedom. And there's no state tax here, uh, income tax. There's uh, just great living community. And uh, if you can survive the winters and come out here with your ideas and your opinions, live your life, but don't force them on other people, we'll welcome you with open arms. It's a great there state to be for all right. Well, again, wishing you best of luck. Denton Knapp, thanks for being part of the Hazard Ground. I appreciate it, Mark. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Kill Cliff's Hazard Ground podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at producer at hazardground.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.